The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The name of the game in all of these, both antibiotics and steroids, studies have been released that show that five days of steroids are just fine. Oftentimes it goes way too long. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Welcome back to Annals on Call. Today, we're going to have part two of our two-part series on COPD. Once again, we refer to the In the Clinic article from August 4th, 2020, titled Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease. Joining me again is uh, Dr. Anand Iyer, who's a pulmonary critical care physician and geriatrics palliative care researcher at UAB. We hope that you learn a lot from this continuation of our two-part series on COPD. Well, Anand, welcome back for part two of our uh, COPD discussion. As an academic hospitalist, I mostly see people who have COPD who now have increased shortness of breath. And one of the things that bothers me is they get labeled as acute exacerbation and then they go down a road without thinking about what's causing the shortness of breath. So maybe we could have a a conversation about how you think about when one of your COPD patients says that they're having more difficulty breathing. Do you have a differential diagnosis for that? And how do you put people into different categories? Because I would think treatment is different depending upon what category they're in. Yeah, for sure. I mean, exacerbations are what we see bread and butter in internal medicine and pulmonary for sure. And caring for them is important because they do influence outcomes. About a quarter of all people admitted to the hospital for a COPD exacerbation will die in the year following this. So it's important that we get it right in terms of diagnosis and also help them transition back home properly. COPD exacerbations are graded in severity as mild, moderate, and severe. Mild didn't require much, but increased use of their albuterol or rescue inhaler, moderate, they may need a steroid and or antibiotic, and then severe, they'll need an admission to the hospital, ER visit or admission to the hospital. And across the board, it's important to know if they have the three cardinal symptoms of an exacerbation, shortness of breath, increased sputum volume, or change in the color of their sputum. Those are cardinal criteria. Other criteria can be present like wheezing, but they're not necessarily the big three that I think about. Uh, And that's important because that helps guide me into thinking, is this actually an exacerbation of COPD? Plus, you got to go back to that good old physical exam and and look for things like edema and JVD and and thinking about, is there a component of heart failure? Because like, you know, heart failure is often diagnosed in people with COPD and it's tough to tease out, do they need a diuretic? Do they need steroids and NEBS? So trying to get to the bottom of that will be important. But um, get, get the history right. Is it slowly progressing, worsening shortness of breath, increasing their sputum volume, and now it's changing colors from what their baseline is? Then do that good exam, and then consider a chest x-ray to look for other infiltrates. But 
if you were in the clinic, that's how you would go. So right now we're talking about people who really have an acute bronchitis on top of their chronic COPD. And if someone has purulent sputum, uh, increased sputum, dyspnea, at least two of those three, including purulent sputum, now we're going to probably put them on some antibiotics and we may or may not, uh, and often do put them on some steroids. For how long? Shorter is better. Yeah. The name of the game in all of these, both antibiotics and steroids, studies have been released that show that five days of steroids are just fine. Oftentimes it goes way too long. Five days without taper. Yeah, without even a taper. Yeah. You don't have to do the taper unless you feel like the exacerbation came on in the long pace, but that's just nuanced things that we may change subtly. If they slowly worsening um, symptoms, we may taper them slower depending on their severity, but basic 101, short prednisone first. One of the things that I have seen in the past is people who are labeled as having left-sided heart failure, they're on all the perfect medicines. And what they really have is COPD and right-sided heart failure, but the left side is doing just fine, or they have obstructive sleep apnea and right-sided heart failure. But the same people who get COPD, uh, if they're smokers, often will get left-sided heart failure. And so how do you think about that in terms of management when they don't have purulent sputum? I think it's nuanced. It's, it's a matter of looking at their exam, seeing if you think that they're volume overloaded, if they have increased weight above their baseline, if you know that they actually have systolic dysfunction. And then I might do a balancing act of a shorter course of antibiotics that I finished anyway. The steroids are short, and then I kind of get a diuretic started. I don't think it's wrong to kind of combine all three and then, and then see if they improve. But the matter of the fact is that you question the diagnosis and then that you dig into it and actually make the right tests like an echo, an x-ray to look for pulmonary edema, those kind of things. So justify it. Just to get esoteric, <laughs> how often do you see, because you know that I always get esoteric. For sure. <laughs> um, uh, how often do you see someone uh, like with, with emphysema have a pneumothorax because they popped a bleb or something like that? Or I mean, are these things that we should be looking for on chest x-ray and and what would make you think about something like that? Well, those are those are actually rare. They're not, I don't see that very often unless they had a procedure or something like a bronchoscopy, I'd definitely be inclined to think, okay, is there a lung biopsy involved? Is there lung uh, bronchoscopic lung volumes, coils that were inserted, something like that to improve their emphysema. If they describe that sort of sudden onset, the shortness of breath and chest pain on one side, I'd be thinking pneumothorax and or pulmonary embolism. Uh, you know, um, right off the top of my head, I'm forgetting how many may have pulmonary embolism with every exacerbation, but it could be like 10% of every admission. So keep that in your background uh, as well. What are your criteria? And, and you're seeing a lot of people in critical care. When do you think about pulmonary embolism as a possibility in your COPD patients? If they're not making improvements with my initial therapies, like if they're not making, if their wheezing is better, yet they're still significantly short of breath, I got to think something else is brewing here. Um, they're tachycardic, they're desaturations, you know, that kind of thing. I'll think about, okay, I've already made therapies with steroids and antibiotics and nebulizers and diuretics. Nothing's making any difference. Got to think about that in the background. So one of the things that I've been taught over the years may or may not be true, so I need you to, to check on me, is the only thing that we know definitely that decreases mortality in COPD is home oxygen in people who require home oxygen. Am I overstating that? That is correct. Um, the 
important point is that if they don't desaturate to meet criteria, then don't necessarily start them on oxygen there. So like if there's, if they're below 88% or a PaO2 on ABG less than 55, then they meet criteria for supplemental oxygen. It's important to screen people for this. If you're concerned about their shortness of breath not being explainable, walk them in clinic. We do what's called a six minute walk test in clinic. And that's when they're walking for six minutes and we'll huff and puff all the way down our clinic hallway until they come back. And if they desaturated less than 88%, start them on oxygen and show improvement above that. And then make sure you deescalate over time if they don't need it. So it can be done. And do you put people on 24 hour oxygen or do you have some people who just use oxygen at night? What are the practicalities that I need to think about if I'm going to put someone on oxygen? It's a lot to factor in, but usually it's exertional oxygen. Nine times out of 10, the first thing we do is they're okay at rest and all they need is a couple of liters of supplemental oxygen with exertion to get them to the store, to get them around the block to their mailbox and back, that kind of thing. As the disease progresses, it may, and you retest them, it may become something that's continuous 24 hours or an overnight. So you got to think about not only the fact that, that they need it during exertion, but can they, can they carry it? I often think about that when I'm thinking about a frail older person. You see them in clinic with a rollator that comes to the VA. Can they actually carry that big tank? Yeah. Or is it time for a, something of a portable uh, concentrator to help them improve their mobility and not be tied down by the tank itself that's supposed to help them improve their exertion? I always think about that in my back of my head. If they're older and frail, and then I need to figure out a way to make that oxygen not be a burden or ball and chain, as it's called often. So, um, but insurances are tough to support it. And so <laughs> that becomes a real frustration of mine. Let's talk about non-medicine uh, drugs, not oxygen. But let's talk about rehab. Who do you send to rehab? What does rehab do? And how do you explain that your, to your patients? So an accredited pulmonary rehabilitation program is also one of the most beneficial interventions you can do in COPD. It's usually three times a week, one hour sessions that are supervised, education, exercise training, monitored closely. So I feel very, I, I encourage my patients that these are safe environments where your oxygen levels are watched closely, where your breathing rate is watched closely. It's important to be in an accredited pulmonary rehabilitation program like we have at our facility. But the unfortunate aspect is that there aren't that many that exist nationwide. So they're tough to find. And then they're rarely used by the average clinician. And that's a big frustration. I think a lot of people are trying to improve the uptake of pulmonary rehabilitation because it improves dyspnea. And it's one of the best interventions for anxiety and depression in COPD. And quality of life has improved. And then if you institute it right after an exacerbation in the hospital, it's even been shown to improve reduced mortality risk in the following year. It's something I recommend for all, almost all of my patients that are at least moderate COPD or worse. It's never too soon, I don't think, to start it, particularly because it can teach them how to live and cope with COPD down the road. Is this mostly aerobic? You know, a lot of our COPD patients lose a lot of muscle mass yes, uh, because is. they're sitting around. So do they do, they do anything with resistance There's training? some resistance training there too. I mean, and it's not only walking. It could be stationary bikes with resistance and then treadmills and a little bit of weights or bands or something like that. But also they teach, importantly, breathing training 
mm-hmm. exercises like purse lip breathing and abdominal breathing to improve the exhalation phase and to getting out that uh, trapped air. So it's just little techniques like that, that I think my patients have all come back to me and said, I love that. I'm still using those techniques every day. So I said, it's great. Does Medicare cover that? I believe so. Okay. So I know one of your passions is palliative care for COPD. Indeed. And uh, as a matter of fact, I just, we just consulted palliative care on one of our COPD patients today because he's very severe. And it seems to me like too often we think about palliative care in mostly in oncology, but there are other diseases that are just as bad and severe COPD is, uh, as we said on rounds today, uh, every bit as bad as many cancers. Talk about palliative care. How do you broach it with the patient? And what does palliative care do for these people? Man, this is, this is where I do all my research and I spend a lot of my time thinking and um, trying to pioneer this concept of pallipalm where you fuse palliative care into pulmonary medicine for people like who have COPD or other severe chronic respiratory diseases. It's important to even know what palliative care is first. And I don't think the average internist or the average pulmonologist gets it right. It's often equated as only being hospice, so therefore only appropriate at the end of life. That's not correct. In his residence, we only saw palliative care helping us with conversations about the end of life at the end of life in our ICU. So that's where we often see it. In reality, it goes much beyond the end of life. It's a service that provides comprehensive supportive care for physical and emotional symptoms, spiritual care needs, and caregiver support. These are these essential elements while planning for the future. I explain that to the person who meets those criteria in my head, that this is what can be offered to improve your quality of life and also to help you plan for the future. In, in a disease that has a lot of uncertainty, both prognostic uncertainty about how the exacerbations are gonna go and how you're gonna live for a long time with a poor quality of life, unlike somebody with cancer who might have a short precipitous decline. It's important to think about the what it is, like I just described, but also the when and the how to do it. So the when is, is a good question. You said your patient has severe COPD and, or very severe COPD. That to me is late still. By that point, they're probably even hospice criteria. So a person um, in my research, people with COPD have accepted palliative care as early as moderate. So that FEV1 above 50% for symptom relief. So in that point, it might be a strategy focusing on symptoms and then planning for the future. And then as it gets more and more as a disease progresses, that palliative care intervention starts increasing in its intensity. It starts off low, it increases in intensity as the disease progresses. So my main take home for your, for your audience is palliative care is important at the diagnosis of serious illness. And to me, COPD is one of the most serious. Third to fourth leading cause of death, symptom burden, as you said, as high or worse than a patient with cancer. And then you've got this prolonged roller coaster of symptom burden and exacerbations, which also impacts the, the caregiver. In my practice, I, I, I try, I have some criteria which we can talk about that might be useful for clinicians um, to refer to, to palliative care, but I, I, I get as many people as I can to subspecialists that I can't care for myself with some reasonable changes in what I call primary palliative care. That's delivered by me as a frontline clinician. So when you refer patients, what, what are the main things that they're doing 
over time that your patients find useful? You can refer a patient to palliative care based on three different categories. Think about these as dials on a radio. You can think about it like lung function. Maybe lung function alone might meet criteria for a threshold to refer to, to specialist palliative care. Maybe it's care needs or symptom burden. Maybe it's a prognosis. So those three categories, if, any, if your patient meets any of those criteria, that their prognosis is poor, their care needs are high, or their lung function is lower, then think about it in that patient. The biggest ones that I've seen, if I could just say cases, one uh, lady in her 50s with severe to very severe COPD was uh, very malnourished, had a very low BMI. And so she was frail with sarcopenia. I recognized it the second I walked in the door. She had an emphysema phenotype, very short of breath, not a lot of sputum production. So you think about that netter's image in your head of somebody that's very thin and frail. I referred her to palliative care. Before that, she had been seeing clinic visit after clinic visit after clinic visit and hadn't been done. They were able to do a multidisciplinary nutrition evaluation on this patient, started her on supplements and um, even medication, boosted her appetite, boosted her strength. That improved her quality overall. Her muscle mass got better and she was able to engage in things like pulmonary rehabilitation better. The flip side was somebody with refractory breathlessness. So, so short of breath, nothing's working and we've optimized everything. We were able to use palliative care to help us start low dose opioids for shortness of breath that at a safe level that I felt comfortable with and the patient felt comfortable with and so did palliative care. And his breathlessness has been remarkably improved. So, I mean, those are two just simple examples of how you can incorporate the service to work as a team together with you so that you feel safe about what's going on. And none of this was saying, oh, you're going to die and like anytime soon. These were people who have lived years now and they've improved their quality of life tremendously. Yeah, the thing that I say at the bedside all the time when I'm getting ready to call palliative care is we can focus on the disease, but the palliative care docs focus on your symptoms, not the disease. And they're going to work very hard to try to improve those symptoms while we're still taking care of the disease. Right. And it's important still to also talk about the disease and where it's going. That often never happens. I don't know if you talk about that with your patients in the hospital, that like a quarter of them may die in the next year and 50% in the next four years after they leave the hospital after a COPD exacerbation. Those are the stats right now. And so the trigger, that hospitalization is your perfect trigger to get them over to palliative care, um, just for everything from symptom burden, also to prognosticate and plan for the future and get that advanced directive in place and get those goals um, aligned and values-based discussions to start happening. Well, that's great. These two sessions have really taken us from the very beginning uh, through the course of COPD, things that we should think about uh, when we have COPD patients and ways to improve the quality of life, because that's really our job, is to try to maximize the quality of life of our patients for as long as we can. What final thoughts do you have uh, for our audience? That's a great question. Again, I think it's important that you confirm diagnoses, that you march through things in a regimented fashion, and then you start to open up, don't anchor. Think about other diagnoses, and then when it gets to the point that you think they might need a referral to us, bring them over to pulmonary medicine. We'll help out as much as we can. And if we need to start incorporating palliative care sooner and earlier in the trajectory, it's about that arc for the patient and their family, um, improving their quality of life and, and helping them live better and age better.
And the, the other thing that I heard uh, that I've not been good about is the role, uh, the rather early role of pulmonary uh, rehab. That's right. That we should be thinking about that. We get so focused on the medications and whether or not they need oxygen, but good old fashioned physical therapy and uh, a certified pulmonary rehab program is something that I hope all of our listeners, if they don't know where one is, try to find out where one is for their patients. Absolutely. And, and, tell, and work on your inhalers and tell them to stop smoking. Thank you so much, Anand. Thanks, Bob. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. In this continuation of our COPD podcasts, we discussed many things. To me, the most important was uh, the role of pulmonary rehabilitation to improve quality of life in patients with COPD and the early use of palliative care to strengthen symptom control in patients with at least moderate and certainly once they get to severe COPD. We also had a good discussion of considerations uh, concerning acute bronchitis in COPD and the importance of short-term therapy. We hope you've learned a lot from this two-part series on COPD. Thank you for listening. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participants' statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.